2: Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books and Economics, a podcast channel from the New Books Network. I'm Peter Lawrenson, a professor of economics at the University of San Francisco. My guest today is Scott Gelbach, a professor at the University of Chicago, where he's the director of their PhD program in political economy. He is a widely published political economist with a regional specialty in Russia, Ukraine, and other post-communist states. He's also kind of a personal role model. Um, I remember seeing him present one of his very first papers, Using Game Theory at the American Political Science Association annual meetings when he was a grad student and I was just starting my PhD. Um, and it was uh, sort of inspiring me to, for me to see someone who came from a deep knowledge of a specific country that wasn't the U.S. Um, using game theory and this set of tools to to understand it because I was coming from a background of uh, being interested in China and thinking that uh, game theory could be useful but not having any uh, real examples of other people doing it. Um, so it's been really exciting for me to you know sort of follow in his footsteps a little bit and uh, see um, how his career has progressed, and see that, um, you know, from his example that one can actually succeed in doing this kind of thing in academia. Um, so we'll be talking today about the recently issued second edition of his textbook, Formal Models of Domestic Politics, which is part of the series, Analytical Methods for Social Research from Cambridge University Press. Scott, welcome. Thank you, Peter. It's a thrill to be here. So let's start with the basics, just in case uh, there's, there's folks who um, aren't steeped in it. Um, what is a formal model?
1: Oh, that's a good question. Um, let's maybe start with what is a model? And, and let me let me answer this question as a social scientist. So think about what a, a model of social science is as opposed to what a model of physics is or whatever, though. though obviously, there are some connections. So I think we can think of a model as a stylized representation of some aspect of the world around us. So the world is complicated. It's it's you know, enormously um, uh, uh, complicated. There are there are many pieces and many moving parts, and it's helpful to focus on particular aspects of that empirical reality while abstracting from others. So we can think of that as an answer to the question of what is a model. What is a a formal a formal model? Then we could say is a stylized representation of the world around us that is expressed in mathematical terms. Um, And I guess the typical such model is deductive in nature. We assume certain things and we see what follows from those assumptions. Now there are mathematical models of of the world around us um, uh, uh, of various types. The models in my textbook uh, tend to be game theoretic or, or they're almost exclusively game theoretic models. Uh, or we can think of game theory as um, a language uh, that uh, we use to describe strategic environments. It's the best language that we have to describe strategic environments, by which we mean some environment where the outcome depends on what multiple actors do, and each understands that interdependence when uh, making decisions. So, you know, an example of such uh, an environment and such a um, uh, there, there are many such models uh, in the textbook and in the literature uh, more generally. Um, think of models of electoral competition where the election outcome, so who wins and what policies they would pursue if they win, depends on the platforms or the candidates chosen by by each party. Um and, and so uh, that inter- interdependence then plays into the sort of platform or candidate choices that a party might make. So, for example, you might think that party activists would think that they can get away with a more extreme platform or candidate if they expect the other party to do the same. So in that sense, there's a strategic interdependence and it's that strategic interdependence that we're trying to capture using the language of game theory in a formal model. Of domestic politics.
2: So, what is the what is the value of uh, formalizing the logic versus just you know talking it through?
1: So, I think there are different answers to to that question. I, I I think a a sort of obvious answer to the question is that our naive intuition may lead us astray, and so by writing down assumptions that we Uh, believe to be reasonable and seeing where they take us, we can check our intuition. So I think that people who use the tools of game theory in their work would would often say that one of the primary benefits is simply to check that naive intuition. So there are other benefits um, such as, I, I guess a sort of related benefit might be that that. Uh, even if our intuition is correct, that a model might produce some additional uh, surprising implications, and those additional surprising implications are things that we can take to the data.
2: So, what are what are some of your favorite examples of those? That uh, I mean, it's tricky because, of course, it is you know the exercise of working through the logic that that helps you see some of these things. But um, what are some good examples of things that uh, intuitions that we have that? Don't necessarily hold, or or some surprising findings that have uh, come out of yours or, or other people's research.
1: So let me let me maybe discuss a couple of examples. Um, so much of the early formal literature on on um, politics focused on uh, elections uh, and how they operate, and, and so if we think about electoral competition. A basic intuition might be that when parties care about policy and not just about winning, and I think a little bit of introspection or observation of the world would suggest that that's typically the case, that they're not just trying to hold office for office's sake, but, but, but that they care about um, the, the, the policy that they can pursue if they win. A sort of naive intuition might be that when parties care about policy and not just about winning, that they should... Gravitate toward the policies that they most prefer. So, if you see, say, the Democratic Party and the Republican Party competing uh, uh, in in some local or national election, our naive intuition might suggest that, to the extent that they care about policy, that that will pull them away from the center of the ideological distribution uh, of the center of um, uh, the, the the distribution of voters' preferences towards what party activists might most prefer. Okay, so there's an important um, model uh, or modeling perspective uh, that dates to the 1970s to the 1980s. Some work that was originally done by uh, Donald Whitman and then an important paper by Randy Calvert uh, that shows that this naive intuition is not necessarily true. And and the key to understanding that parties may not move away from the center of the ideological distribution, they may may not move away from the positions that think about a sort of median voter would most prefer, is that parties have to win to implement policy. And if parties know where the median voter is, if they know who that centrist voter is, the voter who's going to be pivotal in some election, then they'll gravitate to what that voter wants, even if they care about policy. And so that's a sense in which the in which the naive intuition maybe leads us a little bit astray. Um, But then again, a bit of observation uh, suggests that parties don't always move towards the center of the ideological distribution. They do, in fact, gravitate often to the positions that that activists in the party most prefer. And so a further intuition then that I, I think this modeling perspective helps us to understand is that parties care about policy um, and if there's uncertainty about voters' preferences such that they don't know where that median voter is, then left parties will tend to adopt positions to the left and right parties will adopt positions to the right. And so if it helps, this is there's a there's an analogy here to the logic of of auctions um, where you think about different bidders for some object. Maybe it's a a grandfather clock in an estate sale or something. And if individual bidders don't know how much other bidders value some object, the object that's being, being auctioned off, then they're going to trade off the probability of winning the auction and the surplus that they gain from winning it. So if they bid a little bit more, they're more likely to to win the auction, but on the other hand, they're going to be a little bit less happy about having won it because they'll pay more uh, for the object uh, that they have won. And so in the same way, if parties are uncertain about where the center of the ideological distribution is, who that median voter is, who is decisive on election day, then there's again this trade-off that if parties move a little bit closer to the center of the ideological spectrum, then they have a greater chance of winning the election, but conditional on winning the election, assuming that their campaign promises are binding or the candidate that they've chosen is who they think that she is, they're less happy because that person or that platform is farther from what party activists most prefer. Okay, so I think that's an example of, of how a model helps us to think through what's really important behind some empirical observation. So if we begin with the observation that parties don't always adopt the same position, that they tend to gravitate to the ideological extremes to at least some extent, we might start by thinking that, oh, that's because party activists really care about policy and that's gonna dominate any concern that they have for winning the election. But the model then helps us to understand that, no, that in and of itself isn't sufficient to understand that phenomenon because you have to win in order to implement policy. And that should encourage parties to move towards the center of the ideological spectrum. But then on the other hand, if we further understand that they may not know exactly where that center is, who the voter or the set of voters is that will be decisive on election day, then that together with the fact that they care about policy may move them away from each other. So that's an early insight from the literature on formal models of politics, one that that I think is, is maybe emblematic of the sort of thinking through uh, uh, the implications of various assumptions that a formal model helps us to understand.
2: Right. And I think just to highlight it, I think there's sort of uh, two two, element, two or three el- different elements or functions of the model that, that your your example gets at very nicely. So one is just kind of interpretive. You know, if you're if you're on the average university campus and you just talk to, you know, the average university student, they probably would tell you that, you know, politicians are all, you know, selfish and corrupt because, look, they don't pursue the policies that I know are best and, you know, they should be further left or in some cases further right, you know. And uh, this, you know, this model helps sort of the, the basic intuition of the median voter of well even if you want to pass a, just care about policy you actually have to win to pass the policy i mean it sounds obvious once you say it but like you know again the kind of discourse on a you know freshman in college campus uh, might make you think that that's not relevant and you just sort of need to take the position but um so so it helps with kind of the interpretation and then also <clears throat> excuse me it um also kind of highlights uh the strategic usefulness of, of game theory, right? So if you're thinking about, if you get to the position where you're running for office or working for someone running for office and you're thinking about, you know, what positions do we want to take, then this kind of highlights uh, some of the trade-offs you may be making when you think about, uh, you know, how far do we tack to the right or the left, um, you know, within within whatever ideological bounds you could feel comfortable with um, so it so it gives kind of lessons both ways and then as you did as you talk through it and, and your book does a really nice job of doing this with really simple models of just going through like okay here's a really simple model and this says one thing but then you might think there's something else going on so now let's add those things and uh you know formal modeling gives you that that way to sort of add things one at a time and see like how many ingredients do we need in the recipe to get something that. Captures a phenomenon that we're we're, we seem to be observing in the real life in the real world. That's very good.
1: Yeah, and I think one of the things that 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 you mentioned um, uh, maybe helps us to think about another. um, I don't know if it's a surprising implication of a model, but but it helps us to understand what what might be an empirical puzzle. So it it's of course not true that politicians are, are are never corrupt um, politicians may care about favors that are granted to them by by special interests licit or illicit and um, you know those may, may be fairly innocuous such as helping to get out voters on election day or it could be the proverbial envelope full of cash that's passed across the table but but I think one of the puzzles that the empirical literature has highlighted, that the formal literature helps us to resolve, is that at least in this country, uh, it's not true everywhere, it's not true of of Ukraine, which is a country that I know something about, but at least in this country, the amount of money in politics, the amount of money that's spent on elections is actually incredibly small relative to the stakes that are involved. So it's, it's well under one half of 1% of GDP, uh, the uh, 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 funds that are spent in, in any quadrennial election. And so that's maybe surprising given the stakes that are involved. But if you think about the incentives of political parties uh, that, say, care about winning an election and they understand the value of, of this money, either to winning the election or to uh, just lining their pockets, they will tend to gravitate towards whatever the special interest wants. That'll be true for both parties, such that in the end, the the special interest looking at the parties will say, well, there's not really much of a difference between the two parties. They both adopted a position closer to what I prefer than either one of them might have otherwise chosen. Um, And so I'm just going to sit out this election. And so The the campaign contributions or the illicit contributions or whatever they are, uh, we would say happen predominantly off the equilibrium path. So they're not actually the special interest doesn't actually have to give money in order to influence the election. It's the fact that the parties have already moved the direction, uh, uh, moved in the direction of whatever the special interest prefers that allows the special interest to say that's good enough for me and I'll just save my money for something else.
2: So, despite there there not being, uh, I mean, of course, that's going to be surprised to most people who aren't familiar with the the data and the political science research. But despite there not actually being that much money spent on uh, trying to you know buy elections or buy policy, um, the the wealthy are are influencing the policy nonetheless. That's
1: right. That's right. I mean, it, it's it's the logic of a of a child who does what the parent wants because they understand that they're not going to get their allowance uh, if, if they do otherwise. And so the parent doesn't actually have to withhold the allowance very often. It's just the understanding that, that if, uh, if the child, I don't know, steals a cookie from the cookie jar or whatever, that they're not going to get their allowance that, uh, that, that influences behavior. And then they, the allowance is paid out on schedule every weekend.
2: Right. I guess in the other, you know, but the, then again, the people still, yeah, I yeah, this is another example where I think there's, it's interesting because it, it sort of sounds obvious once you say it, but people often uh, mistake it, you know, if they're, you know, like, I don't know, another example is like, maybe it's too old of a reference now, but like Y2K, all this money was spent to dis- stop a computer disaster in Y2K and there was no disaster. So people, you know, afterwards said, Oh, maybe we need to spend that money. Or, you know, if there's a, you know, whatever pandemic, Prep, you know, prevention thing you do seems to work, then maybe the end, then people will start to say, oh, well, there wasn't a pandemic because no one got anything. Um, and that kind of thinking about like, what would have happened if, which of course we can never observe, but like, that's, that's definitely a, um, a real, I don't know. When I, when I think about, you know, teaching undergrads and grad students just to, about, about game theory and like, what, what do you really need to do? It's like always laying out those alternatives and like all these things, like you said, off the equilibrium path. Um, my favorite example that I start with is, you know, think about like, did nuclear weapons matter in the, in the, um, in the 19, uh, 1900s, I mean, in the past century in, in shaping world politics. And of course, a naive answer might be, well, they were never used after, you know, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So, uh, then I guess they weren't that important, but of course they shaped everything. It was just the, the threat of them potentially being used that, uh, that, you know, hovers over everything and is in everyone's minds and, and affects their decisions, yet they're never actually were used.
1: That's very good. Let, let me give one more example, if mm-hmm. I could, of of um, uh, of a case where maybe our intuition leads us the wrong direction. And and this is a more recent model, and the, the logic is maybe just a little bit more subtle. So a sort of basic intuition might suggest that autocracies authoritarian regimes are more likely to transition to democracies when there's more threat of social unrest. So when people on the street want something out of the autocratic government, uh, that uh, um, to the extent that there's organization of of interests opposed to the autocracy, that we're more likely to see that regime transition to a democracy. So there's a um, pretty famous series of um, models uh, by uh, Daron Asimoglu and my colleague here at Chicago, James Robinson, that shows that that's not necessarily true. And the sort of key to understanding why that may not be true, that, that regimes that face more social unrest may in fact not be more likely to, to, to fall, to transition to some democratic form of government is to understand that autocracies can respond to unrest by, by transferring resources. So there's unrest today, then, then there's some, you know, I don't know, pensions, pensions increase or, or, or you know, wages for state workers go up or, or whatever. So there's some larger transfer to the disaffected group today in an attempt to, to demobilize uh, those who pose a threat to the regime. But the point then is that the group that poses a threat today may wonder what will happen tomorrow if their supporters go home. So any promise by the regime of greater transfers tomorrow, so we've raised your pensions today and don't worry, we'll raise your pensions again tomorrow. Any such promise of greater transfers tomorrow is not credible if the de facto power of those who are in the streets today is transitory. So if the group the disaffected group has been able to turn out its supporters today, and if the regime responds to that by providing some sort of um, favor to them by increasing their wages or increasing pensions or whatever, the promise of doing the same tomorrow is credible only to the extent that that disaffected group can get its supporters out into the streets again tomorrow. And so what we would say, the sort of contemporary language of social science is that to the extent that that's not the case, to the extent that the regime can't promise to provide transfers tomorrow because that disaffected group can only get its supporters out periodically, that there's a commitment problem on the part of the autocratic regime and that democratization, so transitioning the regime to some democratic form of government, solves this commitment problem by transferring formal political power to the group that has de facto political power today. But the point then is that this is only necessary if the group that has de facto political power today is unlikely to have it tomorrow. So the regimes that democratize are those that face only a periodic threat of social unrest. Those are the regimes that cannot credibly promise to make transfers in the future that they can only credibly promise to make them today during that transient period when the disaffected group has its supporters in the the street. And so the counterintuitive conclusion of the Asselmoeckle-Robinson model then is that democratization is less likely when there's a more frequent threat of social unrest. So entirely counter to what our naive intuition would suggest. Okay, and so that maybe sounds, I don't know, of cute but but you know could that possibly correspond to any actual empirical reality well there's an important set of cases that as and robinson discuss in these early papers and then in a book that they wrote where they compare the experience of england and germany in the 19th century so germany has this very well organized union movement a very uh, active socialist movement and and you might have expected given that that germany would be more likely to extend the franchise to the poor in response to this frequent threat of unrest that they faced. England, in contrast, has that not so much, and so you would think that, well, you know, England is is likely to remain um, monarchical with with a very uh, limited franchise that that extends to the landed elite and, and not many more. But in fact, of course, what happens is exactly the opposite. It's England that dramatically extends the the franchise in the 19th century. Germany, not so much. But Germany has this very, it has maybe the world's first true welfare state uh, under uh, Otto von Bismarck. And that welfare state, according to Asimov and Robinson, comes about because of this frequent threat of unrest that allows the, the autocratic regime to credibly promise to favorable transfers, a uh, favorable set of policies, not just today, but also tomorrow. And so democratization then is unnecessary for the German elite to defuse social unrest while it's necessary for the British elite to do the same.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
2: That's great. And yeah, that's a a nice set of examples. So hopefully uh, uh, folks who are still with us are sort of getting a flavor of you know why? Why we we do this stuff? Um, so uh, why don't we talk a little bit more about the book and, and its role? So um, who who is the main audience for the book, and like how much math or other background do you do you need to, to make use of it? Who should who should get it?
1: Okay, so I think that the main audience for the book is uh, graduate students in political science or economics with some background in in game theory. Uh, The book assumes that the typical student has had, say a semester's worth of game theory and some understanding of differential and integral calculus and and basic optimization theory. The idea is that students have learned some game theory, they've learned some math and they, they can put that to use learning canonical and important new models of domestic politics. So I think in practice, the book is used in a lot of political science graduate programs as the text for a second course in formal theory, where the first course is a course in game theory per se. It's also used in some economics departments as the text for a course in political economy. It's a term that means different things to different people, but in economics essentially means the study of politics using the tools of economics. And then it's also used in some advanced Undergraduate courses in economics departments where students have had the same sort of background.
2: Hmm. So. Um, so actually, why don't, why don't we just stay, I'll give you a chance here to explain what you have a are have a political economy, PhD program, which you're you're leading now, and that's a, a new thing. So. You know, as you mentioned, like there's people in political science um, using this approach, and there's economists uh, studying politics and calling it political economy because um, they're using their tools. So, so why have a, a distinct political economy uh, PhD program?
1: Well, so I think a lot of a lot of um, a lot of folks in the discipline who do the sort of work that that you and I do had a particular sort of graduate education that we might describe as as second best. So sort of best given the constraints that existed in their institution or in their graduate program when they were in graduate school. So that typical education is maybe a PhD in political science where one learns uh, important questions and important literatures in political science, but then alongside that, uh, substantial coursework, often a master's degree in economics. The idea being that it's the economics coursework that provides the tools that one uses to answer these important questions of politics. So that's second best in the sense that in learning these tools, one is also learning a lot of consumer theory and so forth that is just not that important for the typical person working in the field. And so our intent in creating this new program was to uh, provide a curriculum, provide an education for students who want those tools, but with applications drawn much more from politics than uh, from economics. And so for example, rather than taking uh, a year of coursework in microeconomic theory, which is where many of us in the field learn these tools, will provide a year of coursework in formal political theory. So students are gonna be learning the same sort of mathematical tools as they would in the micro theory sequence in an economics department, but they'll be doing so uh, in the context of learning important models of politics. So our goal very much is to train students who have, will learn these tools, They'll, they'll have great expertise in the tools of political economy, meaning game theory and uh, just as important empirical methods for uh, causal inference. Um, but to train them also in the big questions uh, in political science, uh, so that they're not they're not just um, um, specialists in particular tools, but they're students that can be their scholars who will be can be in conversation with with um other political scientists who may not use the same sort of tools.
2: That's great. So how's it going?
1: It's going great. It's going great. We have spent the last um two years uh putting the program together. We spent a year moving it through the university bureaucracy. That was uh, uh, academic year 2021. And then this past year, we um, uh, we put all the pieces together. Once we had formal approval from the university, uh, we uh, put the curriculum together, we had a successful admission cycle, uh, and we have uh, uh, new students coming in in the fall, and also uh, a few students who are transferring over to the political economy program from an existing PhD program in the Harris School that historically had had a political economy track that now will be subsumed by this new political economy program. I should mention that this new program is joint between the Harris School of Public Policy and the political science department at the University of Chicago. So these are the two units on campus that have a real concentration of scholars working in the field of political economy.
2: Great. Well, I'm excited to see uh, see how that uh, develops. And, um, you know, yeah, exactly. Exactly. As you said, you know, my experience, I sort of uh, yeah, started, started in a political science PhD and then decided I want to learn more of the tools and uh, switched over to um, an economics PhD and, you know, then ended up learning, you know, a lot of auction theory, which was, you know, great. Um, but, uh, but sometimes, but not exactly directly, uh, you know, the, the applied to the, the questions that I was trying to, trying to sort out. So, so having a, a program that's, uh, built from the start to, to integrate, um, the questions and the tools together is, uh, is a great idea. So I really wish you, wish you all success with that. So, um, so, uh, so tell me, um, tell me how the, your first edition came out in, I guess in 2012, um, or was written then. So, so it's been 10 years. So how is uh, how has the field changed, and, and how have you updated the textbook?
1: So I think 10 years is probably the right amount of time um, in, in which to let uh, a textbook um, be used before it's it's updated. Um, so, of course, many of the topics that are covered in the book, these continue to be active uh, research areas, and, and there's new work that, that I wanted to incorporate one way or another in the text. So the first edition covered... Models of electoral competition, models of special interest politics. We've talked about both of those a little bit. Um, Models of what's called veto players, meaning actors who have the ability to block change from the status quo one way or another. So think about in the US system, you need the agreement of the House and the Senate and the president in order to uh, adopt any policy uh, change. And so you can think of each of those actors as a veto player in some sense. Models of delegation, which in this context means delegation from a legislature to an agency. Um, uh, delegation of authority to carry out policy to choose the particulars of, of how policy is implemented. Something that's, that's going to be very much in the news. I think in a few days when the decision comes down on the West Virginia versus EPA case, it's before the Supreme Court. Models of political agency, meaning models of how elections help voters to hold politicians accountable. Models of coalitions, uh, which means a lot of different things, but for example, models of how legislatures, legislators bargain with each other. Um, And then models of regime change, which we've talked about a little bit. So all of these, um, to a greater or lesser extent, continue to be active research areas. And so for each of these existing topics, the second edition, includes uh, new material, either new models that are covered in the main text or or just as important, new exercises. A lot of the models in the text are covered through uh, exercises for which instructors have complete solutions, um, can request complete solutions if they're using the text in a course. Um, But then the other thing that's changed a lot over the past 10 years is that um, there's been an explosion of interest in in um, authoritarian politics, um, both in empirical work on autocracies and in formal theoretic work on uh, autocracies. So you think about it, the vast majority of the world's population for the vast majority of, of human history has lived under some form of autocratic government or another. But until pretty recently, there was relatively little game theoretic work, formal theoretic work, more generally, on autocracies, and I think that has much to do with the fact that the field has its its geographic origins in the United States and political science departments um, and economics departments uh, in the U.S. And so much early work focused on on uh, the politics of the U.S. and then later the politics of other democracies. But that's changed very much, and 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 there's been there's been a ton of new work. Um, by you some by me you know by by others uh and when i wrote the first edition 10 years ago my sense at the time was that the field was just not ripe sufficiently ripe for a textbook presentation but by the time the second edition rolled around and i think this was substantially um, part of the motivation for the second edition is is that there was it was a moment when we could take stock of the field and and try to represent some of the important uh, models that have been developed to help us understand autocratic politics. So that's one of the big changes between the first edition and the second edition is that the second edition includes a distinct chapter on models of non-democracy or authoritarian politics, whatever we want to call it. And, and my sense from talking to people in the field is that's, that's um, something that a lot of people were looking for. Something that 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 they've wanted to cover in class, and 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 hopefully that's easier now that we have a textbook presentation of that material.
2: Yeah, I think my own my own uh, uh, amateur um, sociology of the discipline. I think also there's an element where um, you know, as you said, you know, the the formal study started in. Um, in american political science departments which you know tend to focus more on america and i think also you know in that era people who studied other countries they were especially the non-democratic countries were you know it was so hard to get information and there were often major language barriers you know russian and chinese are a little bit harder than like spanish or french um and and a lot more cultural differences and institutional differences so people spent kind of all their efforts doing that and then to ask them to you know by the way, you need to learn some uh, some calculus or maybe some real analysis and some statistical theory, kind of on top of that was uh, was a little bit too much for anyone to uh, get to. Whereas now, I think um, partly because, uh, well, there's been some regression, but because of greater access to uh, some of these countries, um, and then also because uh, we've you know been able to welcome uh, students who are born and raised in these other environments um, to, uh, to study in the U.S. for undergrad and PhDs, they're now You know, they know it inside and out, at least to the extent that anyone, you know, from that country does. Uh, and then for them to pick up, you know, some some tools along the way is uh is less of an added burden.
1: I think that's that's my understanding as well. I I, I think it's it's a good thing that there are people like you and me who have done this the hard way. We've 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 learned a language and we've learned the the game theory um, while we're in graduate school or or you know, along the way in our formal education but but really the uh, the, the the natural state of affairs is for for maybe most of the people who study a particular part of the world to be from that part of the world. They know the language, they know the institutional context. And, and, and by the way, a lot of students from Russia, from China, from other countries, benefit from those countries' outstanding um, uh, programs of mathematical education. And so they come into graduate school with uh, a set of mathematical tools that allows them to get up to speed early on using um, with the tools of game theory and econometrics and so
2: forth. Yeah, absolutely. It's been it's been really great to see. Um, so, uh, just in our last few minutes, why don't we talk a little bit about uh, take you, put on take off your your game theorist hat or or at least your textbook author hat and you can keep the game theorist hat on, but uh, tell uh, tell me what I should be thinking about uh, Russia and the Ukraine and all of that based on what you know, and all your theoretical background and, uh, and everything. Oh gosh. You know, I mean, it's (laughs) in two minutes. minutes. No. Um, yeah. (laughs)
1: So yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to know how wars end. Um, and, and it's, it's hard to predict what's going to happen in any political regime. Um, and I think much of what we would need to know to, understand where things are going, certainly like outside of my domain of expertise. So, you know, I, I I only know what I read on Twitter about the relative efficacy of different artillery systems, for example. Um, um, uh, or, you know, we would want to know ideally, I guess, how, how healthy Putin is, how, how good his physical health is, um, something that's perhaps very consequential for Ukraine and for Russia's future and something about which there's been a lot of speculation um, on social media and, and in the traditional media and so forth. But it's it's um, very hard to tell from outside the Kremlin bubble um, whether Vladimir Putin is is physically healthy or um, if he's not, in what way that he's not. Um, I guess this does relate to something that we do know um, and something that I think that the social science of autocracy tells us, which is that information does not travel well inside of personalized autocratic regimes like Putin's. So, you know, as a consequence, we know little about Putin's health. We know uh, little, I think, about decision making inside of the Kremlin. But, but you know, at the same time, Putin himself may know little, comparatively little, about. The domestic political environment in Russia and certainly about the domestic political environment in Ukraine. And I think this may help us to understand his decision to uh, invade, that this is a decision that may have been made with very um, imperfect information about the nature of uh, public opinion in Ukraine, the extent of Ukrainian national identity, the uh, improvements that have been made in the Ukrainian armed forces through a decade of war in the Donbas, um, and so forth. Um, I don't know when when the war began. My my uh, Chicago colleague Zhao uh, Tian Lo and I wrote a piece in the Monkey Cage blog at the Washington Post that still I think helps to structure how I think about this conflict, and in particular, the likely consequences of this war on pol- on the domestic politics of Russia, uh, where the domestic politics of Russia are obviously intrinsically important, but also uh, have great consequence for when and how this war will end. Um, and so the perspective that we laid out in our opinion piece was that you know, think of it as a sort of flowchart. That maybe the war is quick and easy, and if so, then Putin gets this big popularity um, bump, um, and 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 all is good from his perspective. But but if it's not quick and easy, then then there's a political problem that Putin faces uh, as as casualties mount and and um, people. Uh, Uh, perhaps learn more and more about uh, disappointing military outcomes and so if that's the path down which we travel then then we speculated the initial response would be to try to control information through censorship and propaganda by banning youtube and facebook and twitter and and um and cranking up uh, to an even greater level, the propaganda on the evening news that's incredibly important to um, many Russian citizens, and including especially older Russians. But then if that didn't work, and then we're heading down another part of this, um, of this flow chart, if the propaganda doesn't work, then at that point, we speculated Putin uh, and the Kremlin would increasingly turn to old-fashioned repression as a way of trying to hold on to power. That, of course, there's been repression um, throughout the Putin era and increasingly so in recent years. You think about the the poisoning and and then the imprisonment of Alexei Navalny, but, uh, but, of course, more is always possible. And so I think where are we at the moment? Clearly, the war was not quick and easy, and so we're now... In in the part of this flowchart where where there's a political problem for the Kremlin, and I, I think for the moment it seems that censorship and propaganda have been reasonably effective in maintaining popular support for the regime. It's it's a hard thing to tell. It's something that with some other colleagues, um, Tim Fry and Kyle Markhart and John Reuter, we've tried to understand through. Uh, through some survey work, the extent to which Putin is actually popular. But but I think the best guess at the moment is that support for the regime is holding and it's holding substantially because of propaganda and, and censorship. Um, but there may come a day in which that's no longer possible. And when that day comes, I think the best expectation is that Russia will become even more autocratic than it currently is. And then what happens at that point who knows? Does that trigger some sort of popular backlash, some regime change? What consequence does that have for the war, um, and so forth? And all of this again is is maybe assuming that Putin remains um, personally healthy, and 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 if he doesn't, then 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 who knows where things could go at that point?
2: Right. Well, that's uh, yeah, it's a definitely tough situation to to see into. Um, and certainly, what you're saying, kind of. Uh, Echoes. I had uh, Dan Treisman on um, last week and sort of the, there's been this shift with Putin from, from what he calls, uh, he and uh, uh, Sergei Guriev called uh, spin dictatorship to, to old fashioned fear dictatorship, which I guess it's good for you that or not good for you. But anyway, that's part of, shapes part of why the, uh, the, your academic research has gone less from, you know, more from uh, academic, uh, sorry, electoral systems uh, towards um, thinking about more straight up autocracy. And, uh, but as as uh, as Trishman and Guria have argued, there's you know as long as they can maintain this being dictatorship, then they'd rather do that than be you know out and out violent. But uh, it just if there's if there's too much bad news to hide, then at some point that that may may switch for the worse.
1: Yeah, and it just kind of feels like we're on the cusp at the moment that I, I think there, there's certainly the threat of more repression. There, there's more fear than there was before February 24th, the date of the invasion of, of, of Ukraine. And, and we see the consequences of that fear in the, the very large number of, of, um, of Russians who have fled the country over the past few months. Um, but at the same time, there's a lot of spin um, and, and the Kremlin continues to rely upon censorship and propaganda to try to shape public opinion.
2: All right, well, um, let's wrap up there and uh thanks again for coming on and to our listeners again that the title of the book is formal models of domestic politics uh and it's a sort of textbook for grad students but anyone um who's uh in the social sciences and uh comfortable with a little bit of game theory i think will will get a lot out of it um as uh, as an introduction to how these these tools can be used to think uh analytically about politics